This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. My name is Joshua Lewis. Today, we've got Dr. Spiegel in studio with us, and we're going to be discussing myths about church history. Very excited about today's show. But before we talk about it, I want to let you know a little bit about who Remnant Radio is, in case this is your first time tuning in. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast. We stream every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 4 to 5. Uh, We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations. We don't mute our microphones, uh, our computers, when we do intros. Uh, and uh, and our goal, is, as we're interviewing these pastors and teachers, is just to suspend our theological presuppositions, get outside of our denominational echo chambers, a lot of big words. Uh, ultimately, what we're trying to do is study God's Word, uh, make sure that we are coming at it, not nullifying it with our tradition, but really just challenging the way that we think, uh, receiving from our Christian brothers and sisters. To my left, your right, I have the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Roundtree. I don't know about legend, but the first... Well, Dr. Spiegel is here in studio to uh, burst our bubbles about church history. So maybe you're not a legend, oh, man. he'll let us know. It's going to be so good. So, <laughs> hey guys, good to have you with us watching the show. I want to let you guys know a little bit about just what we had last week, what we got coming up this week. Uh, last week, we had Dr. Dean Davis on the show talking eschatology. He spoke from an amillennial perspective. It was par- uh, two parts, Monday, Tuesday. And uh, tomorrow, we have... Father Ron on the show. He's an old remnant fave, friend of remnant radio, uh, Anglican priest, and he is going to talk about the sacramental worldview. Uh, Just to hear this guy talk about it it is absolutely fascinating. You guys are going to want to tune in tomorrow at 4 p.m. And then on Wednesday at 4 p.m., because we're starting to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 4 p.m. shows, uh, we have Michael Miller in with us, and uh, and we're doing uh, we're starting a new podcast called To Be Continued. It will be on this channel, so just go to Remnant Radio, uh, but uh, the three of us are going to join on a topic that is TBD right yeah, now. Yeah, not quite sure what we're going to do just yet, Give but... Give us ideas. Give yeah. us ideas. Let us know, show. and we'll, we'll tackle that for you. Josh just flew out there, and you, you went up to Colorado made a studio for I him. did. There was a Facebook post of me accidentally going live, um, and my face just going... Y'all and then good trying to close it. It was pretty funny. Was uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, then went to Oklahoma City. So I've been a lot of traveling. I just got home last night. Or not Oklahoma City. Oklahoma. Crescent, Oklahoma. Uh, lots of traveling. But... Without further ado, I'd love to introduce our guest today. Uh, Dr. Siegel, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I am a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary in the Theological Studies Department. I've been there, I think we established about 13 years. Okay. And, uh, I'm on sabbatical right now, so it's free, free We're making up a you lot work. of time. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. This kind of work is fun. Um, uh, I'm originally from Minnesota, which explains this accent, so... I grew up uh, far north Minnesota. I uh, went to college out on the East Coast and then came to Dallas. I've been in Dallas uh, since 96. So for all practical purposes, I'm a, I'm a Texan. So, But uh, yeah, I've, uh, I do teach theology and church history at Dallas Seminary. And 
uh, out of that work came uh, uh, the book we're talking about. Yeah. Hey, I want to tell you guys about this book. And I feel like I say on every show, like, you've got to read this book. <laughs> You're a book peddler, Michael. But, hey, I think you guys should be thankful. I read books before I ask the people on the show. So <laughs> I only true. ask people whose books I like. That's I true. really like this one. So, uh, actually, I've read a lot of church history. This was one of the most fun church history uh, reads. It's Urban Legends of Church History, and it really corrected some misconceptions. I had some misconceptions I didn't know about, and uh, and so I think you guys are going to be excited about that. Uh, anything else you can tell us about this book? Yeah, the book is um, part of a series, actually, by uh, B&H academic Rodman Holman, and uh, they have uh, an Urban Legends of the Old Testament, Urban Legends of the New Testament, and then the Urban Legends of Church History by Dr. Adair and myself. We are uh, colleagues at Dallas Seminary. Uh, and each of them kind of follow the same format, 40 misconceptions uh, from Old Testament, New Testament, and then church history. And, um, you know, of course, I'm doing the, the church history one. I don't know much about Old and New Testament. Okay. Hey, before we, before we ask you some questions, I want to give you guys yeah. just a little bit of a preview so you know, like, just it's not just general church, church history. I mean, it is, but we, we have some specific uh, topics we're going to cover. Uh, we're going to talk about... Um, uh, the idea that the emperor and the pope and church councils, they were the ones that canonized the Bible. So therefore, should ch- uh, churches be the authority since they chose the scripture? We'll talk about that a little bit. Authority of scripture in the patriarchal period. How is it viewed? Uh, we're going to talk about did Constantine make Christianity the, the official religion? Uh, have you ever heard before that uh, that penal substitutionary atonement did not arise in church history uh, until about a thousand years in with Anselm. Is that really true? We'll talk about it. Uh, we'll talk about the medieval Catholic Church. Did they abandon the doctrine of salvation by, uh, by grace through faith? So um, then we have the Reformation period talking about, uh, did the Reformers believe the Bible was the only source of theology? What was, uh, how did they view especially church tradition, creeds, councils, all the rest? We're going to talk a little bit, for all of you soteriology lovers, Jacob Arminius. Uh, what did Jacob Arminius think about eternal security? Mm. That was might be such surprised. a weird laugh, Michael. That made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as well as total depravity. It, you, you think I'm totally depraved now. Well, you're right. Um, <laughs> okay, so then in the modern period, uh, did, did Christians before Darwin take Genesis 1 literally? Or did some of them take it figuratively? And then last of all, Karl Barth. What was his legacy? Was he a liberal? Theologically liberal. So those are some of the questions we're going to answer. Um, I just ran through those pretty quick, I think. Yeah, That's 2,000 years of church history. (laughs) I tried to go through it pretty fast, but I wanted to give them a little (laughs) bit of a preview. Uh, So let's start with this first one about the emperor, the pope, church councils. Here's the myth. Human authorities chose the books of, of the Bible, therefore... The church's authority is at least equal to scripture. This is a Roman Catholic argument, right? To say that, yeah, Roman Catholic, Eastern yeah. Orthodox. But you see it. Uh, I learned something like this even at Bible college. So mm. there's a lot of misunderstanding about what actually happened. How did we get? To, and we're primarily talking about the New Testament here. Uh, I deal. We deal with the Old Testament in a different chapter. But yeah, there. So the story goes either. Uh, the emperor, I think in the Da Vinci Code book, they even said the emperor is the one who kind of chose these particular books to be in the Bible, or some council voted on them. He had dozens and dozens of potential candidates. 
and they went through them and, and voted. And these twenty some books ended up in the in the canon, or uh, some pope, you know, canonized the Bible. First of all, it's a misunderstanding what we mean by the New Testament canon. People think that canon means that these particular books measured up to some standard or authority. You know, the word canon means rule or authority. Uh, what that actually means is these books themselves are the standard, not, and that is everything else gets uh, measured up against them. The real story of the canon of scripture is uh, actually not as interesting as people wish it was. It, <laughs> and it is that by the year 100, after the time of the, the these original apostles, um, pretty much the, the majority of our New Testament book with uh, New Testament, with the exception of maybe four or five disputed books, was intact and in use all over the world it, with, with no debate or, or discussion. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get to the church councils in the fourth century, uh, there really isn't a whole lot to discuss except a handful of books, some included that should be excluded, and a handful of books, some excluded that should be included. So it's uh, not as interesting as people sometimes make it. There's no conspiracies. There's no power plays. It's pretty much we received these things from the apostles and have been handing them down ever since. Now, wasn't the, the process of canonizing this because of heresy, because there were claims that some of these books weren't official? Uh, I, I, I want to say Marcion showed up and said, hey, all of these books we don't like, these books we like. Right. And then the church said, no, 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 we, we like, like these. these. Yeah. Uh, so it, so it was really a that's response. That's a good way of putting it. I think that's great because there had to be books that Marcion didn't like. That's right. You know, you had to have a, a collection to exclude. Uh, the earliest um, kind of discussion of the books that are part of the New Testament is this thing called the Meritorian Canon, which around third quarter of the second century, around 175 roughly, it's a, just a description. It's not a decision, not prescriptive. It's a description of these are the books that we, it's from the church in Rome, are using, and here's why. And it gives a little bit of background and history. So it's a Probably that was formulated to explain to people, no, 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 Marcion's wrong. Mm -hmm. These are the books we use. We've always been using them. Everybody's using them. Uh, so, yeah, the story, I, and I want to, not to plug another book, but I'm going to, uh, Michael Kruger has done a lot of great work on the canon of Scripture, and his, uh, the canon revisited is really great, a, a fresh kind of up-to-date treatment of this topic. It's a great resource. So uh, it, it sounds like your answer to the question of, you know, whether the Eastern Orthodox or the a Roman Catholic comes in and says, hey, church decided the Bible. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying, well, the, the, it, it wasn't like there was a council or a synod or anything like that. It was really the, the view of history is the church just received the yeah. canon. And almost like I don't, I don't, um, osmosis isn't quite the yeah. right word. Well, let me put it, let me put it really simply. Um, the Book of Romans. Paul writes the book of Romans. Paul's an apostle. He has this authority as an apostle. He sends it to the church in Rome. The moment the church in Rome gets it and opens it up and starts reading it, it's functioning canonically. Mm -hmm. It's not like they get together, the elders, and have a vote on this book. It's tied to the authority of the apostle. So from the very beginning, you can see how the vast majority of our New Testament books, because they know where they got these things from, they're immediately functioning canonically. And because of the network of churches at the time, uh, very quickly by the end of the first century, uh, beginning of the second, all of the churches planted by apostles or the disciples have these books. 
Uh, that's what the actual textual evidence in the early Christian documents tells us. So is there any kind of criteria or process in which these books were only uh, Only in, in that realm of explanation. So mm -hmm. they use those kinds of criteria. Well, this came from an apostle, or this is orthodox, or we've always been using this. When they're explaining why those are already there and why we don't accept these other books. If someone comes along and says, well, what about the Gospel of Judas? Well, that was not written by an apostle. It, well, we have Nobody else in the entire world uses it except you, mm. etc. Right? So it's not a criteria to determine what should and be. And even if such a gospel, explain. like, why would you, why would you... Right, yeah. Jude, come on, you can do better than that, right? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Okay, so, uh, okay, cool. Um, I, I had a question. Oh, it was about the Apocrypha. I wanted to ask yeah. you. So, so what do we do with that? Because I can, I can imagine maybe a Roman Catholic saying, okay, you say you didn't receive it, uh, or you say you just received the canon, but um, it seems kind of like Martin Luther just said, we don't like these books, we're not putting them in, or we'll put them in the back of it, or whatever, and we'll say they're less than. Yeah. So the black it, seems, it seems as though you actually did have a church authority come in and say. Yeah, and, and you did have a church authority come in and, and ultimately canonize those in the 16th century. So the, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent did officially <coughs> declare these things to be canon. Um the, re the reality is much more complicated than that. We actually deal with that in a separate chapter, from, I think, from the Reformation period. Um, very simple in about, you know, half a, half a minute is the Jews themselves in the first century uh, had a kind of a we like it, we don't like it. These are inspired, no, they're inspirational uh, relationship with the Apocrypha. And the early Christians who were Jews and then the early church received that same kind of we like him. And some of us really, really like them, and some of us don't. And so that uncertainty continued on all the way through the medieval period, even to the time of the Reformation among uh, Roman Catholic scholars, which we chronicle in the book. So it would be a really gross exaggeration to say the Protestants kicked the books out, uh, but it would also be an exaggeration to say that uh, these were completely irrelevant and the churches found them and shoved them in, the Roman Catholic Church. I think the proper yeah. attitude is these are inspirational writings and invaluable. Yeah. You know, that almost seems to me to like to validate the Protestant argument that these these were never just universally received, right. whereas yeah. the other ones other were ones universally were. received, yeah. which is why we say the canon is that which was received, uh, whereas the Roman Catholic Church came in and the Council of Trent and decreed, but that was not the norm throughout church which, history. Which invalidates in all of the uncertainties that were expressed right. even by their own. So right. there are lots of arguments for like, hey, why we use certain books that I hear from Protestants? And it seems as if they don't hold water. Um, would you advise people against saying, okay, we use books that are written by the apostles because then you got, okay, well then what about Hebrews? What right. do we do with Hebrews? Yeah. Like and we, 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 we believe books that um, uh, other Bi Bible authors uh, assign authority to. Mm -hmm. So like Peter says the writings of Paul are, are scripture yeah, and Paul says something about what Luke. You with, you know, exactly. So even the Apocrypha, it's not included. So no, I think a better way is to say, look, we, we accept books, same criteria as the Old Testament. These are prophetic. Mm -hmm. And so the, the broad category of pro uh, prophets that was broader than just apostles, but the apostles themselves were prophets, but there were more than just the apostles who were pro who had that prophetic authority. So if you brought it out and say these are apostolic or prophetic, or apostolic and prophetic, um, that accounts for things like Hebrews or Luke or some sure. of these others where you wouldn't say that they're necessarily so apostles. So it's sufficient to say, like, his sheep hear his voice, 
his voice is manifest in mm-hmm. scripture. Uh, God is speaking to his people through scripture. The, the church universal says that's obviously God's mm-hmm. voice. We're going to collect these and follow these. And the church universal has kind of determined what scripture is. Uh, not Okay, God has determined what scripture is. Sure. And yeah. the church universal has accepted that. Yeah, and, and the important thing is these were not declared to be canonical. They were re- received, received as, as canonical. canonical from that first generation great. of Christians. That's good. Okay. So I have just kind of like a quick one, two, three, and yep. I think this will be the last on this topic, and we'll move to <laughs> sure. Constantine. It's an important topic, yeah. Um, because people are asking about specific books, sure. okay? Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, one person is uh, one per- person mentions Clement. Clement was well-received. Was it excluded because it wasn't universal? That was Sean Schulte. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jew and Greek, what about the book of Jasher? And I think somebody else I saw in here, oh yeah, Melvin asked, what about Shepherd of Hermas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Clement, Shepherd of Hermas, and Jasher, why weren't those included? Um, so the I said before kind of very quickly that um, the debate and the discussion over a couple centuries was um, a handful of books that should be in the Bible that are now, you know, Jude, Second Peter, Hebrews, that some people in some places really had questions about, okay, mm-hmm. the uncertainties. And then the other hand, you have books like Didache, and usually it's Didache, Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, sometimes First Clement, not always, um, and this thing called the uh, Apocalypse of Peter, um, Wisdom of Solomon. That list even kind of changes depending on mm-hmm. who you're talking to, uh, which some people included in some places at some times, but neither the exclusion or inclusion was universal. So, yeah, you, you know, you could list several different books that were uh, accepted by some, but not by, by all. But the main ones would be what we call these early Christian writings, the Apostolic Fathers, Shepherd of Hermas, Didache, Bar- Epistle of Barnabas, First Clement, um, and this thing called the Apocalypse of Peter. But those are generally the ones. Jasher is not usually appearing on canonical lists or any of the other so Gnostic writings. At the end of the day, it was less than universal for those. Correct. It never was universal. Whereas Romans, Matthew... Um, John, John, these other books, um, we find no exceptions to the universal acceptance. So uh, s- sticking on this popular YouTube conspiracy trend that the Bible's been thrown uh, together by a bunch of Christians that was canonized way late. Let's talk about Constantine because that's mm-hmm. always that's, thrown in yep. there. Uh, Constantine made Christianity the world religion. How do we, how do we understand, the, I guess, the mythos around yeah. Constantine? Yeah, so up until uh, 313 with the Edict of Milan, uh, Christianity was an outlaw religion. It was illicit. You could not actually legally be a Christian. You had to um, fall in line with one of the Roman pagan uh, religions, or Judaism had an exception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were some that had special allowance. When Constantine came along with the Edict of Milan, he did not make Christianity the official Roman religion. He actually granted freedom of religion, obviously with some exceptions, but freedom of religion, meaning Christianity, as well as any of the other sects, because there weren't just two religions or three religions, there were many. And uh, so religious tolerance was actually granted Mm -hmm. uh, in 313. Now, Constantine himself, because because of his mother, had obviously Christian leanings and was favoring Christianity and thought, yes, people will become Christians now that it's free to become. Uh, But many of them for several centuries maintained their pagan religion. It's uh, just the case that there wasn't this forced uh, conversion. Christianity did become the official state religion in 380. 
So next generation or so under Theodosius I, he's really the one who made it the official state religion, um, not Constantine. Poor Constantine. Yeah, well, you know, he's he got his faults, but he's just, he's always the guy who caused all the trouble. When, <laughs> in fact, but, you know. but he was favorable toward Christianity. Oh, yeah. I know he had a role in pulling together the Nicene Creed. Yep. Council of Nicaea, 325, to, to condemn Arianism and, um, and such. And, and yeah, but in the end, he himself, I mean, he was a politician. He, he was baptized on his deathbed by an Arian, you know, so he, he kind of flip-flopped and wish, was a bit wishy-washy and, um, you know, not a perfect guy, but definitely uh, made Christianity uh, more comfortable in the, uh, in the empire. Okay. So it's one of those myths that's, Kind of true, kind of not. You yeah. Now, I've, I've read before that uh, Constantine, you know, he's the one who's responsible for taking it from like this gospel movement that was spreading around the world and house churches and, uh, you know, just this incredible revival spreading everywhere constantly to this state religion established. I mean, even if it was under Constantine, un- under Theo, whatever you said, yeah, Theodosius, Theodosius yes. right? Like, is that when did Christianity become more liturgical after that? Did it become more um, in a building and meet in a place and all of that? Was there a, a shift at that time, or is this was people throwing stones? Yeah, that would be probably an exaggeration. It was uh, look the the synagogues in the first century were liturgical, and the evidence is the early Christians had prescribed prayers and these kinds of things, not exclusively, and there was a lot of diversity, regardless of you know. Um, what some people was doing were doing in some place, they may be doing something different in another place. So there's not this uniformity that people imagine. By the time you got to the fourth century, though, the time of Constantine, the church already, over the past couple hundred years, had become more liturgical, a little more formal, maybe if, if you want to say rigid. Um, uh, but uh, but there still wasn't this universal. Um, liturgy that that was unifying everybody yeah i think it would be an exaggeration is constantine guilty for merging or being influential and helping pagan religions merge into christianity one of the myths i hear regularly is uh is that that he that even architecture from christian buildings comes from pagan rituals the days that we worship on are pagan days that are merged in with constantine and some of his his leadings there yes and no it's a little more complicated than that you know people say well this place was a pagan temple and now it's been converted to a church or this uh, holiday was a, a observing or, or worshiping this pagan deity and now it's going to be used to, to honor this particular saint you can really look at it two ways you can look at it cynically and say see they're just trying to capitulate to the masses and give them you know take away the pagan holiday give them a, a christian pagan holiday or you can look at it more the way they looked at it as it was a sign of the victory of Christianity over paganism. So you, you've taken over this space, exercised dominion of the mm-hmm. space for the gospel, and now you've dedicated it as a church space, and you've stolen that from Satan as demonstrating the victory of, the, of, the, of Christianity. So we can look back in hindsight and say, hmm, that kind of led to some syncretism, right? Sure. It's always the case. Uh, but at the time, I think their motives were not as insidious. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move to the medieval era, era and talk about penal substitutionary atonement. Now, we are children of the Reformation, and we love to talk about penal substitutionary atonement. But we are told by those in the Eastern Orthodox uh, faith, as well as Roman Catholics and some Protestants, 
that this really didn't uh, even begin until St. Anselm in, uh, I guess, a little bit after 1000. Yep. And, um, and that nobody was talking about penal substitutionary atonement before then, and then Reformation folks just got obsessed with it, and you guys haven't stopped talking about it ever since. Right, right. So what's the real story? Yeah, the, the, the usually the way this goes is that prior to Anselm or the Middle Ages, you had this view called Christus Victor, the victory of Christ. And that was the view of the atonement, that Christ came, and, he, and by his death and resurrection especially, he is... Uh, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and Satan, uh, which is true. I don't think any of us would disagree yeah. with that, right? All on board for that. Um, but generally speaking, we would th that's usually understood historically as one of the effects of uh, the atoning work of Christ or the person and work of Christ, this victory over sin, death, and Satan. So we have to nod and agree with that. Uh, but the reality is this idea of substitution, uh, his flesh for our flesh, his soul for our soul. He shed his blood. He became a curse for us. He took the penalty that was due us. All of that language comes from people like uh, Chrysostom and Athanasius and Irenaeus and Augustine and all of these people who were very uh, strong on this idea that Christ substituted for us, even using a uh, penalty kind of language. Drawing it from Paul, where he says he became a curse for us, or he who knew no sin became sin for us. Um, here's the reality, though. It was one of many explanations of the atonement. Mm -hmm. It was not the only one. It's not that everybody believed only in penal substitution and never thought in terms of Christus Victor or some other positions um, until whenever. What did happen, and we have to acknowledge this, is that it seems to have become a uh, been a a real strong centralization and emphasis on penal <coughs> substitution in the post-Reformation period, which we might say was a, a bit of an exaggerated placement or overemphasis to the neglect of a lot of other biblical and historical um, metaphors for the atonement. So is there a, a strong difference between Anselm's uh, satisfaction theory and penal substitution? They're both, if you step back, they're both uh, substitution Kind oriented. of yeah, substitution-ish. Yeah, so yeah. that Christ is accomplishing, doing something and accomplishing something for us in our place, which we couldn't do ourselves in the very general sense. But um, Anselm's satisfaction view of the atonement was not, strictly speaking, the same as penal substitution. He, you know, We owe God honor uh, as his creatures. We owe him everything, and we've robbed him of that honor by our disobedience and failure to live mm. his law. And so Christ comes and in our place, in our stead, reestablishes that honor uh, owed by humanity by his perfect obedience uh, and as well as um, the penalty due for sin by his death. So it's much bigger than just merely penal substitution. And I, I think it, the reality is Calvin also and reformers also didn't talk about this positive thing that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Do they, do they uh, and just in throughout church history, do they ever get specific enough? I'm talking, I'm thinking pre Anselm ever get so specific as to talk about when it comes to the penalty, how, what, to what degree was the father's hand active and to what degree it was passive? Hardly ever. That sounds like that's more of a post reformation, um, kind of obsession what? with yeah. what's going right. on, you know, Tell me on the cross yeah. and is the mechanics this, after what the you don't see prior to the reformation at least 
not much is this obsession with the wrath of God the Father is being poured out on the Son and he's mm-hmm. turning himself, himself away and the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is it a, is a complete separation of the... Um, that's all post-Reformation kinds of drama that's added to that. So, But if you step back and just say, what is happening at the cross? Uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He becomes a curse, curses everyone on the tree and he's bearing the penalty uh, of death mm-hmm. on the cross in the stead of humanity. That's what you see in the patristic period. So I think that there's a there's a very strong move, um, as far as I can tell, in well, there's there's a couple strong moves in a couple different places huh? on the subject of penal substitution. One of them that I'm seeing amongst Protestants that are uh, leaning more in the liberal space are, are I would say more liberal theology in this area would say that um, penal substitution um, has a lot to do with the wrath. The reason they want to get rid of penal substitution is because uh, the way they view wrath mm-hmm. uh, that it's like this angry, vengeful. Right. Um, the uh, divine child abuse, the, yeah, you know, yeah. the drunken dad comes downstairs to beat up his kid, and Jesus jumps on the way and says, no, dad, beat me up instead. Yeah. Like, it's just a really it's, twisted it's, presentation. It's Let's be honest. Yeah. It's horrifying. It, can, you, can you maybe articulate how has the church articulated penal substitution, yeah. that it's not that not kind like of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, drunken rage? Correct. And even, uh, so this, this post-Reformation emphasis on this wrath of God, which you see in our hymns, and, you know, his wrath and the wrath and it, it really is very uh, hard to find that kind of obsession language in the patristic period or even medieval period. Um, it's better to see what Christ has taken upon himself in his death is what, what we might call the general wrath, that is the penalty for sin and the curse that's in the sinful world of mortality and death and mm-hmm. suffering. It's just we're all suffering that. And in the general sense, I distinguish some theologians distinguish between general grace and special grace you know general grace of rain falls on the righteous and the wicked um, and then special grace is salvation for instance and I think it's important to uh, for us to understand general wrath that is the f- sin and the death and the suffering that we experience in this fallen world and then special wrath which is I'm gonna pour my wrath out on you because you broke my covenant or whatever and I think it's best to see what Christ accomplished in what the wrath that he experienced was this general wrath of mortality, suffering, and death mm-hmm. that all humanity, uh, rather than getting away from this overly dramatic obsession with, well, we have this raging God who's up in heaven. He's so, so mad at everybody and he pours it all out on his son. Yeah. Which is, um, which is really a, a little untrinitarian in my opinion, it, because it, has, it, it, me, it has a lot of problems. It takes but out it's, the, the oneness of, the Trinity, where um, uh, just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Because if you characterize Jesus as loving, whereas the Father is a rageaholic, this is not one God anymore. It's multiple gods. But that, we have to admit that in post-Reformation theologies and preaching and and singing, you do see this, this emphasis on the wrath of God. And so I see some of what you described as liberal reaction to that as a reaction to maybe an overreaction, a an exaggeration in another direction. So, so the PSA guys, in many cases, not all of them, but in many cases, the PSA guys <coughs> have taken um, the theology of the Reformation that have expounded on it to such a degree that would probably be imbalanced in articulating wrath uh, in, in some cases. Yeah. And then you have other groups who are taking those most extreme cases, finding Pendulum that to swings, be right? horribly, horribly imbalanced, and they swing the other way to try to get rid of all of PSA, which would which would be a travesty to church history as well. Right, right. And, and I would say, if based on 
uh, the testimony of the early church, if you kind of look at that, I think uh, a middle position, as I've articulated, would be would be more favorable. Hey, right in the middle. That's right where we like it, right? right Equally in extreme in all directions. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, so uh, another question just while we're on this medieval church sure. subject. Uh, okay, so, you know, we have the Reformation that comes in and Martin Luther nails his theses and it becomes <laughs> justification by, uh, by faith. Salvation is a, is a grace thing. It's not a works thing and so on. And that's kind of how Reformation yeah. plays out. And so there's this, this legend, this idea that like essentially the medieval... Uh, medieval period, it was the dark ages. And basically no one had the Bible, no one had the gospel, no one, no one knew anything about God or the Bible or anything. And, uh, and so what was that period's understanding of salvation by grace? Yeah. So one thing I have to do is we have to distinguish between what we see in the theological writings at the time. Like we just talked about Anselm and you can talk about Aquinas and all these scholastics, etc. Um, I mean, they're, I don't want to exaggerate, but they're mostly talking to each other, okay? Um, and then it's really hard to tell what the average churchgoer mm. in town, the, the townie or the country folk, were really believing and thinking um, because we don't have a lot from them. We do have occasional revival movements and reform movements that, that take on a popular character. And interestingly, um, the, the nature of their message um, seems to be very proto-Protestant. Um, kind of going back to some of the patristic emphases. So uh, so it's hard to be uh, monolithic. It can't be universal, monolithic, uniform. Not everything's uh, working out exactly the same everywhere. But at the official level, um, it would be a really an error to say that the medieval period believed you're saved by works, justified by works, and then the reformers reestablished the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Um, that's not true of modern Roman Catholicism. That's not true of medieval Catholicism. The, um, the truth is they believed that you were saved by grace and grace alone. That's, and by the merits of Christ alone that he, he purchased for us. Um, and they would affirm that very strongly. We are saved by sola gratia, by grace alone. The difference is how that grace comes to you and how it functions. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference, and we have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. So in the typical kind of medieval Catholic position is grace is necessary, it's efficient, it comes in, and it produces in us this faith and obedience. So the result of the work of grace by the Spirit is faith and obedience, and that is, you know, meritorious to some degree, but not because you, you're bringing something to the table, but because of the grace that is behind it. Um, and that carries through for much of the medieval period. Uh, you probably do see some some de-emphasis of that and some emphasis on grace as a reward, uh, maybe in the late medieval period, to which Luther and some others uh, rightly responded. But um, for most of the medieval period, they would strongly affirm salvation by grace. So give me give me uh, a couple categories. Mm -hmm. So I have like the Protestant category. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, grace is um, God's God's power at work within us, unmerited. We didn't earn it. He just does it sovereignly. Mm -hmm. That's His grace. Um, where like an uh, an Anglican, someone who would be kind of 
Barely Protestant. It was one of our viewers who's Anglican. He says we're, his username is Barely Protestant. He's an Anglican. It's pretty funny. Um, uh, it's kind of that halfway point where they go, okay, uh, we, we believe in sacramental theology, that the sacraments themselves have grace in them, mm-hmm. still God's grace, and then maybe a Roman Catholic view. What would be the difference between an Anglican and a Roman Catholic in the way that they look yeah. at uh, sacramental, is it called infused grace? Is that what Roman yeah, Catholics would, yeah. would articulate? Infusion of grace by means of these sacraments. That's the other thing is how does the grace come to you? you okay. So um, so the initial infusion, you got to think of it almost like, like our term infusion, something in, injected into you that mm-hmm. gives you new life. Uh, the initial infusion is utterly meritorious, you're totally passive, and that is coming at infant baptism usually, mm-hmm. right? So, obviously, you're not cooperating with your baptism. So, that's this infusion of grace. And then, that gives you the ability to cooperate with the means of grace that that are provided through the church, the normal means. Um, In a kind of a typical Protestant perspective, there's the important distinction is a a separation or distinction between justification and Mm -hmm. sanctification. So, the means in Protestant theology of justifying grace, what we might say saving grace, is uh, the word and faith. Mm-hmm. So the gospel proclaimed, we receive it by, by faith, and that's the means of saving grace coming to you. Then, the means of sanctifying grace. This opens up a whole realm in which I consider myself a um, sacramentalist to a degree, in the sense of the means of sanctifying grace are uh, the word proclaimed, the gathered community, the sacraments of Baptism, Baptism, Lord's Supper, Come on. Uh, as well as all these other things that the, that God uses, um, but particularly the means of, of sanctifying grace, uh, being Baptism, Lord's Supper. So, um, so there's room for that, but there's going to be a distinction in most Protestant theology of there's justification and then sanctification. I see. Whereas in Roman Catholic theology, even today, there's that distinction is not really... That line is blurry. Yeah, so... Which is why the they get accused. the initial of grace and the continued, you know, cooperation with the media. I mean, that makes sense why, why we would confuse uh, works-based salvation, because it looks like it this looks is like justifying it. grace right. in every single act that you when do. When, in fact, the grace itself is giving you the ability to believe and do the works. Can I ask you about the Council of Trent as well? Um, because it seems as if we say, like, hey, they didn't believe in grace by faith alone, right? right. People... They heard you say that he, they do believe in the, the saving grace, right? Mm-hmm. But then they go, but wait, the Council of Trent says, right? So, not by so, grace through faith so alone. I'm very careful by saying it's by they totally believe in salvation by grace alone. I see. Not, okay, but the Protestant distinctive is oh, it's by grace alone through faith alone. Ah, right? very clear. That, that is different. <clears throat> now, it's not that the, the idea of salvation by grace through faith alone is unheard of in church history, but it definitely takes on a. Um, kind of a central uh, character in the post-Reformation period. Hmm. So, yeah, what does salvation by grace through faith look like throughout medieval period and patristic, back to the patristic period? Yeah, I would say um, varied. There are various perspectives on that. Augustine, for instance, um, would be, you're saved by grace alone, not apart from any grace. Grace is sufficient. Um, And it produces in you both the will and the ability to carry out, to believe what you need to believe and to do what you need to do. Um, that was, His favorite passage seems to be uh, Philippians 2, um, that it is God working in us both to will and to work or will and to do. So, um, again, grace is the source of the power to believe and to do, but 
he would say you're saved by grace through faith and good works produced by that enabling so, grace. So if you were to recharacterize how people understood what Martin Luther was, uh, what his role was in the Reformation, where he particularly took issue with the Roman Catholics, uh, is there any way that you would correct our understanding, uh, no, a typical think, Protestant understanding? I think it's it's close to, you know, his, and, and I'm a Protestant because, because I think it is, in light of the developments in, in church history, um, I think it's a better explanation. The distinction, not separation, between justification and sanctification, and then the, uh, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, I find that to be um, a, a better packaging of, the, of mm-hmm. the thing. But I understand it's the result of a number of um, uh, developments and, and reactions and such. Okay. Excellent. So uh, when we're talking about the Protestant Reformation, let's talk about like the, the myth that the, uh, the, 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 the early Protestants just got rid of everything but the Bible, yeah. right? Uh, and I'm quoting a modern creed, but no creed but the Bible, right? right? Let's get it all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that Sola true? Scriptura. Yeah, like, Sola Scriptura. Yeah, Sola Scriptura alone. <laughs> that means yeah. no logic, no reason, no history, just the Bible. No, no tradition, no nothing. Um, yeah, so Sola Scriptura has a context that's right. It, the question is, what is our uh, final authority in matters of faith and practice? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, the council? You know, so a, a decree of a council or a creed from a council? Uh, is it the pope's uh, a bull or something from a pope? Uh, is it my individual experience, or is it the Bible alone, or is it a combination of these? And so the the Protestant Reformation was kind of rolling this back to a patristic understanding that no. Scripture alone is the only inspired, uh, infallible Word of God written, mm-hmm. okay? But the Protestants were not trying to roll the church back to the first century. Uh, in that case, you might as well just get rid of all, half the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. It was still being written then. They were actually trying to roll the church back to the patristic period, the patristic consensus, more or less, uh, to Augustine in the 4th, 5th mm-hmm. century. So the patron they, saint of Protestantism. Yeah, they, they really <laughs> did value the, the church fathers, and that was one of the debates. What did the church fathers really say about scripture and the church and theology, etc.? So um, it, it would be definitely, as far as um, the word of God written, written authority, scripture alone is that uh, norming norm which cannot be normed is kind of the term they used. Um, it does not mean, though, that as you're doing theology and thinking through the right understanding and application of scripture, that you're not drawing also on um, church tradition, what have the, all the fathers believed, what has been believed everywhere, always and by all, uh, the councils, the creeds. Expressly in many of the Protestant confessions of faith themselves, they say, we hold to the first four ecumenical councils and the creed of Nicaea and mm-hmm. Constantinople. I mean, they're explicit about this. As uh, authorities for the proper context in understanding scripture. Okay, so in your book you talk about a conciliar movement that took place about a hundred years before the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Could you explain to us what this conciliar movement yeah. was and why it has relation to the subject we're talking about? Yeah, so the there was this crisis in the late medieval period about uh, competing popes. Let's just be honest, there were two popes for a while, and then there were three. When they tried to get rid of the two, they refused that to step down, and they elected a third one. And so there was this uh, problem with, look, papal authority, the pope as a final authority in arbiting ecclesiastical matters is really great when you have just one pope. 
now you have competing popes. What do you do? And so uh, the, the theory of conciliar authority in the West um, was floated for a while, uh, practiced. In fact, the Council of Constance was the one that finally put an end to the schism between the popes, uh, elected, you know, this new pope, negotiated, got the other two to resign, and then right away the pope declares he's above the council. So it's, it, is, it does get, you can, so you can see this kind of tug of war between who has the final authority here, the council or the pope, in the east, in the Eastern Orthodox, and if there are Eastern Orthodox people watching, um, they never bought into the, the papal authority theory. It was right. always the council, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking through the council, the church gathered, um, which, by the way, the, the Protestants were much more favorable toward. Mm-hmm. Not entirely, but but that was a much more favorable position. Right, they never bought in. This is the Great Schism, right? That yeah, between the... East and West. To this day, they're they're separated over that papal authority uh, thing. So I would want to know about um, Wesley's quadrilateral and what you think about that. Because mm-hmm. you talked about different ways that we would understand Scripture. So he talks about Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Yeah. Uh, what would you think of that as a as a Protestant it, hermeneutic? It, it helps. Um, I don't really I don't really apply that. We topic maybe for a different day. We uh, Dr. Glenn Kreider and I wrote a book called. Um, uh, practical primer on theological method, where mm-hmm. we do talk about uh, sources for doing theology, and we kind of break it up into um, not not scripture. See, scripture is revelation itself. Mm-hmm. Creation is revelation itself. Jesus is revelation itself, and so we theology is talking about that revelation, mm-hmm. right? Our response right. to revelation. So instead of putting scripture in dialogue <laughs> with these other things, I'd rather say, look, all of these things are in dialogue with each other around scripture. So that's my like one that. problem with, so we say, look, it's the interpreter, it's the scientist, it's the philosopher, it's the minister, it's the, you know, these various uh, fields of, of inquiry that are interacting with God's revelation. You feel like, a better approach. so even in saying that, it seems as if you're saying that this, the quadrilateral, se- quadrilateral seems to place scripture yeah. uh, in line with tradition and experience and reason where you would say scripture is supreme above it. And these are these are means in which we try to interpret this this divine revelation. Yeah, I think that's, that's close to, yeah. Tradition and reason are divinely inspired. All right, Makes so sense. we have a statement from an Eastern Orthodox, I, Dustin I, Neely. He says, Protestants say they hold the first four councils, but they don't. Um, would you say fair enough? Or would you say, oh, we for sure do? Um, I know I do. I do hold to the to the dogmatic uh, decrees of the councils. Uh, there are in all of the councils disciplinary um, decrees that which become eventually the basis of uh, the Western canon law um, in the Eastern Church. There, you know, so so these are matters dealing with deacons and, and jurisdictions and, and various other kinds of things that we would say are the Church has has generally distinguished between the dogmatic, the things that appear in the creeds, and the uh, non-dogmatic elements um, of those councils. But I would say as far as the creed, uh, Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, I, I hold to that, um, as well as the uh, Chalcedonian definition from 451. Um, so I and those are the four that you're, you're quoting? You're saying there's the yeah. Apostles, the Nicene, the Nicene-Constantinople, and no, the, I, the definition? Uh, no, I would say the, the so Nicene, uh, 325, Constantinopolitan, 381, and then the Ephesus, 431, and okay. Chalcedon, 451. Apostles' Creed is out there. It was never a universal creed, per se. I guess I'm not uh, super familiar with the yeah. Ephesus Creed as there, well. There was no creed. It was a bunch of anathemas. Gotcha. 
against Nestorius, <laughs> which I think, which I totally agree with. So okay. I agree with all of the anathemas. We think Ephesus is huge. Okay, sorry, that's my. Got to sneak that one in. But yeah, let me say though, um, to to kind of almost backtrack and side with your um, the commentator there is um, Protestantism is so vast mm-hmm. and varied, mm-hmm. and I do know evangelicals who I guess would fall into Protestant that. Uh, don't know what the creeds say, and probably if they heard them, would object to them. Um, my job is to stop that, yeah. is to teach them what, <laughs> what this really is. But some of your your Anglican and high church uh, traditions, with the exception of the Filioque, um, the and the Son edition and the of the Son. West, which That's I don't right. hold, I, I side with the East on that, but Uh-oh. we're not going to talk about it. Oh, okay. okay. I want to start okay. another schism. <laughs> See what he did there? That's clever. Yeah. No, yeah, I. Uh, actually, if we could just I draw would, a line right, right there. No, I'm kidding. Actually, I, would, uh, I, would I think it's a fair it. debate, actually. I think it's a very fair debate. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's go to Jacob Arminius. Let's talk about him. Hi. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what did you call him? Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy A. Let's do Jimmy it. Jimmy A. I love it. Okay. So, uh, Jacob Arminius, what did he think about uh, total depravity? Did he think that just. Any random person could hear the gospel without any extra empowerment or grace from God and just make a, uh, make a decision. Was he borderline Pelagian? Did he, right. you know, uh, what exactly, did, or did he believe as, as everybody, uh, as all, all the theology nerds know, Calvin would say, Hey, we're, we're totally depraved. We need the grace of God in, in order to yeah. even make a choice to Essentially believe. Essentially and unchangeably bad about, apart from divine grace is how we... Yeah, let's let's give you the three yeah. options. Was he Pelagian, partial Pelagian, or complete reprobate? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's not... I'm not anti-Arminius, wow. but that's, wow. the, that's the... You're norm- pretty close to our... It, if I listen wow. to you on some days, you're Arminian. No, the, the reason I bring it up is because that's Actually, like the normal... Here, Josh says he's soteriology, soteriologically homeless. I'll tell you yeah. what Josh is. Josh <laughs> is an Arminian who pretends to be Calvinist. There you go. That's what you are. No, it's, I, I bring it up because when I hear Calvinists talk about Jacob Arminius, those are the only yeah. categories that we yeah. get typically. Semi-Pelagian yeah. or something. That's right. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, it's important to understand. Look, Arminius himself, if I talk to a person on the street or at church who calls themselves Arminian, um, chances are they're not going to agree with Jacob Arminius himself. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jacob Arminius himself very clearly held to total depravity. Uh, we are un- uh, unchangeably lost apart from divine grace. He would agree with um, Calvinists on that front um, as a starting point. Uh, really, though, the difference is, um, you know, essentially unchangeably bad apart from divine grace, the question is, what is this divine grace and how does it come and who does it come to? So in the Armenian tradition, yes, even though uh, you're starting out in a depravity deficit um, by this thing called prevenient grace, uh, this what I call half-jokingly general special grace, it's where Christ's death has accomplished something, and that is uh, he has accomplished the gift of repentance, so enough grace to give everybody this free choice. That's different than saying you in your natural capacity, apart from any help from God, have the freedom to believe. You would not have agreed with that. Uh, I have this little trick I play on my soteriology students is I have <coughs> quote, a bunch of quotes by John Calvin with his picture next to him. Nice. And then the, and the, at the end, I slip in a quote by uh, Jacob Arminius. 
and all of my Armenians in the class, I say, what do you think of this quote? You know, I still have Calvin's picture up there. Yeah. And I have them pick, pick apart the quote. And they're ripping it apart because it's you know, too much on God's sovereignty and too much on depravity. And then I flip it and there's Jacob Arminius. It's an Arminius quote. So, you know, he's not what you would expect. I'm waiting for right? that day where I go to that class. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now the cat's out of the bag. It's yeah. not going to work anymore. Um, so you have to distinguish between the Arminian tradition since then, which uh, does kind of slide, I think, into... But you, the other thing I want to really insist on is you don't go in kind of a spectrum from Arminianism to Pelagianism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't even like the term semi-Pelagian. It's not like, oh, he's semi-Aryan. He's semi-heretic. Right. Uh, I would say, I, I would say, look, there's this in-between space with um, uh, typical John Cassian, same time yeah. as Augustine. We would say, look, we are, we are mortal, fallen, um, we are spiritually sick, maybe you want to say, and we cannot save ourselves. We need divine grace, but we do have this capacity uh, to cooperate with that, those, those means of grace. So um, that's a different position than Arminius as well as Pelagius. Right. So, uh, so Arminius, uh, Arminius and Calvin <coughs> had the same view on total depravity. depravity. Uh, and then there's eternal security, the you know, yeah. colloquially called once saved, always saved. Arminians these days are all like you can apostatize, you can lose your salvation. Uh, what about what about Jimmy? Yeah, you know, he he waffled on that. His students, a lot of them kind of departed from this idea of, of once saved, always saved or eternal security. But he himself said, you know, he never taught that a truly regenerate person could could truly fall away but then he says right away but you know i do admit that there are some passages that that i don't know what to do with um so he kind of waffled and it's hard to tell if in his public writings and speaking he taught one thing but you know confused his students with other things uh offline but uh, definitely the Armenian tradition took the different route and said, no, 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 these passages are more than just problem passages. They teach you can lose your salvation. Okay. And you were telling us, um, like, uh, if you feel comfortable, just talking about the, the, the soteriological spectrum throughout mm -hmm. the patristic era. Sure. Um, yeah. You would say if there's probably people in that space that would lean more Calvinist and some that lean more Armenian. But what would you say is the, the, yeah. the, good the broad brushing? Yeah, focus. you know... Just for transparency, and I hope uh, I don't have half your viewers hate me, but I'm I would consider myself more in the Calvinistic. Uh, no, we have Calvinists on all the time. We're, <laughs> so, we're very nice about it. So Calvinistic, you know, uh, but um, but even then, I'm going to say if you if you averaged out the patristic period mm -hmm. uh, and then had to adopt you know, define it by a kind of a post-Protestant position, it would probably average out to an, more like an Arminian position or even a Cassian position, something that's. Um, definitely not Pelagian, which is, ah, oh, yeah, you can save yourself, you're fine. Um, but it's going to be really hard to say that the patristic period was five-point Calvinist. You do see in the strong Augustinian tradition in some right. segments of the medieval period what you might call a five-point Calvinist position. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of average everything out, it would look a little bit more like a moderate to modified Armenian position. I just have to, that's my it's perspective. Helpful. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's talk about Darwin. Um, <laughs> so, uh, moving to the modern era here, we're going to change the subject a little bit. And so, it's often stated that, hey, uh, Christians took Genesis, the creation story, 
completely literally until Darwin came along with this theory of evolution. And we panicked. We panicked and we had to find a whole new way to interpret the Bible. So uh, is that a myth or is that a fact? It's a myth. Um, The reality is there was no universal consensus on how to read Genesis 1, uh, as far as we can tell from the beginning. I will say... Some uh, did take I it see very literally there from the beginning. from the beginning. Um, the I will say that um, the literal six-day creation, twenty-four-hour period, does have a showing. So it's not like nobody ever took it literally. Um, but even but but some didn't. Someone said, "Well, this is a device. This is poetry. This is something like that." Uh, what, of course, we know it all happened instantaneously. Um, uh, but oftentimes, actually, what uh, church fathers, etc., etc., are going to do is say, look, here are the days of creation, but they're also prophetic. So it's the outline of, of history, and we're in the sixth age, and we're waiting for the seventh, and, or eternity. Or they'll say, or, or they'll draw a spiritual and theological um, interpretations from the thing. So it's, part of the motivation there was not philosophy or science or whatever, like that often is today, Part of the motivation was things in the text themselves that didn't seem to make sense mm-hmm. at a strict literal reading. How can there be light before there's a sun? How can there be right? So they're they're attending to the details of the text and coming up with a less than woodenly literal interpretation. So we have like this uh, politically charged, uh, scientifically charged conversation in the 21st century because we have all this data that has been weaponized on both sides mm-hmm. to right. say, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way that it is. We read that into that text and we say like, hey, this is what we've always believed and we become very fundamentalist about it. But it's like, well, it, it, it can be either way, right? right. Like uh, the church universal throughout history has had multiple interpretations. Correct. And it's not to say that the one who says, hey, there was a literal seven day creation that that person is a loon because that's been represented throughout Correct. history. And the person who goes, maybe this is more metaphorical and poetic, that, that person's not necessarily a flaming liberal right. <laughs> because that's been represented yeah. throughout church yeah. history as the well. The reality is it's been a diversity of positions on that. That's helpful. I, I seem to remember, and I could be wrong on this, but I seem to remember that, that you walked through a little bit of St. Saint, uh, Saint Augustine's writing specifically on this subject, and he did not take it literally. Is correct. that correct? So what, how did he come to those conclusions? Uh, we will say, look, he, he probably was driven by philosophical concerns. So, some of the those elements of the text that were a little strange. How do you take this literally when you have, you know, no sun until... Um, but some of it was philosophically driven from his kind of Neoplatonism and some of his positions on, on things philosophically um, and was motivated to interpret it in a way that made most sense in his worldview and his culture, um, which is what we all do to some degree. That's right. right. And we have to be aware of that. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. And our last one, we've got a few minutes left here, is Karl Barth. Yeah. I've always heard the charge that Karl Barth was a liberal, that um, maybe because uh, he didn't believe in inspiration of Scripture or inerrancy of Scripture in quite the same way that... Uh, that the Chicago certain, Statement would? Yeah, no, I don't no, know that he would agree with the Chicago Statement. So let, let's just talk about, was, was Karl Barth theologically liberal? Was he in the camp of born-again Christians, where, where was he? Yeah. Um, if you are going to judge Karl Barth by uh, tr- early 20th century conservative fundamentalism, uh, he's going to fall short. He did not ed- affirm 
what we would call inerrancy of scripture, that verbal plenary inspiration per se. He he knew that thing was was a teaching. He actually says uh, in in one of his volumes that um, verbal plenary inspiration does seem to be a, a very common view among church, in church history. Uh, but he backs away from affirming that fully. And for fundamentalists in the 20th century, that was enough to write him off right. completely, right? But if you judge him in light of the theology of his teachers, the liberal theology of, of Germany in the 19th, early 20th century, uh, that man was extremely conservative. I mm-hmm. mean, they called him a Philistine and a Bible thumper. I mean, he was radically conservative. He embraced the, the deity and humanity of Christ, the Trinity. Um, the, that made you a Pharisee back then. Huh? Right. I mean, you're, you're crazy to believe these things. Uh, the virgin birth, the um, uh, depravity of humanity, the need for grace, these kinds of things. So all of the things that we would say are the central elements of the Christian faith. And by the way, he treats the Bible. I, I hear he, at points, seems to correct things in the Bible, but I've personally never seen it yet. Mm-hmm. So even though he's afraid to fully affirm and he has reasons for that that are I don't agree with, but I understand. Um, he doesn't agree with inerrancy per se. Uh, he treats the Bible as the final authority of in practice. He, yeah. yeah. Did he have any, uh, where was he on resurrection completely totally all on board? bodily resurrection, yeah. yes. So he would say, Nicene Creed, he'd pass. He was totally, yes. And he, in fact, he was mad at people who rejected the, the creed and complained about yeah. it. So, I, I yes. like how you told in your book his conversion story. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, he, I mean, he was raised in the bastion of liberal theology. He, he was Swiss, but studied in Germany under what I call the godfather of liberal theology at the time, Adolf von Harnack. And, um, and during World War I, he was pastoring at this little, little church in Zaffenville, Switzerland, and he sees all his teachers of theology in Germany siding with the Kaiser in World War I and picking up the, the German flag and fighting for nationalism and, and fatherland and thought, how in the world could these people, these enlightened, modern, God, you know, they boiled down Christianity to love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and then they're endorsing uh, the war machine in World War I. And he totally lost confidence in liberal theology and had a crisis experience and started reading the book of Romans. Mm. He said, this God in Romans is not at all like what I was taught wow. at, at seminary. So Romans will do it. Yep. So, and then what would you say was his legacy? Because <laughs> I think for a lot of evangelicals, which is not all, but the majority of our viewers, <laughs> uh, they don't even hear about Karl Barth yeah, yeah. that much. But when you talk to certain people about Karl Barth, They'll say things like he's the greatest theologian of the 20th century or something. You know, I've heard sure. those kinds of things. So uh, so what would his legacy be? Because I, I know you're, you're trying yeah. to say, hey, let's invite him back into yeah. the fold, okay? Yeah. This guy's on the team. Yeah. What would his legacy be? Yeah, uh, I will say this is an exaggeration, but I'm going <clears> to <throat> say it anyway. He single-handedly destroyed modern liberal theology in, in Europe. Wow. Um, total exaggeration, but it sounds good, doesn't it? No, I mean, he really was, though, like a Martin Luther of his day, and he kind of got the thing rolling. And, and he has no successor. There's nobody, everybody who follows after him says, well, he went a little extreme on this. But um, So I think the, the, the complaint that he gave, public publishing, the fact that he was a s- disciple, he was raised in this liberal theology, totally swung 
to um, embracing the classic Christian faith. Um, that's his legacy. And to this day, um, the liberal theology of the 19th, early 20th century has been replaced. It, it did die. It's been replaced by neoliberalism or neo-orthodoxy or some of these other things that are a chastened form uh, under Bart and his successors. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. This is uh, that, that time slot in the show where we've got to wrap things up. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, check out some of the other content we have coming out uh, in the next couple of days. We have uh, an interview uh, with our good friend, Father Ron Drummond. He's going to come on and talk about sacramental theology. Me, Michael, and Michael will be doing our episode on uh, the To Be Continued, if you will. It's a separate podcast that we're working on, uh, specifically addressing and discussing the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, and we are going to be coming out with lots of other content uh, in the future, uh, talking to N.T. Wright, saying that he might want to come on in February. Uh, we've discussed with uh, uh, Dr. Van Hooser, who's discussing coming on uh, the show as well. I'm really trying to get a bunch of shows lined up with guys on the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy to discuss that statement. Uh, actually trying to reach out to the guys that are still alive who helped wrote it. So uh, that, that would be, uh, uh, I think, pretty pretty great if we could do some of that. So stay tuned. Make sure to subscribe. Give on Patreon if you would. There's a couple different ways you can give. Uh, in the link uh, or in the description of this video, there's a couple of links that are placed there. Uh, you can give on Patreon as low as five bucks a month. You get extra content from us. Get kind of Michael and my thoughts about specific issues that we've discussed, uh, or you can give us a one-time gift there on PayPal. Uh, that's my spiel. Did I miss anything, Michael? <laughs> you got it all, man. You got it all. So uh, I, I think I, I would like to hear a closing thought from you if you yeah. have one, and just like something to summarize your golden nugget to leave everybody with, and uh, and I'll share mine, give you a second to think about it, but I think for me, um, I, I would just say church history is so valuable. And yeah. I think that needs to be said, especially for evangelicals and the, the non-denominationals of the world. Hey, I'm a non-denominational too. Uh, but man, it's, it's just like we, we see, we act as though this like Bible just came out of thin air and, uh, there's a whole history that goes along with it, you know, really challenge your faith to, to look into that. And this book actually would be a great place to start. So, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Yeah. I, I like to say that a lot of evangelicals, uh, define church history as, um, how everybody misinterpreted the Bible until we came along, uh, and I think it's important that yeah, I think it's important that we see that look there are there are very valuable things we get from the patristic, medieval, Reformation, modern periods. Don't write any of it off. Treat it critically. Read critically and Christianly. But um, I also want to say, look, we, we are only able to scratch the surface on a lot of these topics, and I, we get into a lot of the primary source evidence, etc., for what we've been discussing in the book itself. That's great. Um, Man, you guys, we need to, uh, I guess, fact check. I guess that would be my, my closing thought, um, that we, we hear things and we repeat things. I was um, in church uh, recently where people kept talking about Paul's name being changed from Saul to Paul, and Paul is just Saul in Greek. I, I've been in church recently and, and heard people say that the fear not is 365 times in the Bible, once for each day of the week, and you can quickly search that on literally any Bible app and find out that's not even close to being true. Um, there's just a lot of things that we hear and we repeat and we should stop doing that. As Christians who love the truth, we should really kind of go back to the sources, which is a reformation. Uh, as Protestants, we should we should desire that. Go back to the sources, test those things, make sure those things are true. And I would encourage you to do that. And hopefully, uh, Remnant Radio can help you in that process. Yes. Blessings, right. and we'll see you guys next Thank time. Thank you guys so much. Peace.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.